podcast. This is Unhirable with White Karen and Go To Gay Tommy. Our guest today is David Lutkin, the creator and one of the performers in a show that like blew my mind that I saw last week called Woody Says. Say hello, David. <laughs> hello, David. <laughs> Correct. Perfect so far. <laughs> Karen's making really good impressions by talking about filthy Jew bastards in Israel. It was just a quick hellosies, <laughs> how are you, for our guests before the show. I don't know. I need to shade me. Well, it's very know, nice to meet you. It was so nice to meet you, too. Sorry for bringing up Jews immediately. <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's probably all right. They're probably funding this venture in some capacity. This Irish venture? Although this maybe Jewish not. Jewish venture? Yeah, how did you end up so... All right, first of all, David, what we were is... We're the Irish... We're at the called? Irish Repertory Theater in Manhattan. Yeah, we're straight up chilling on the, in, the, in a theater. This theater is so Irish that the seats are Kelly Green. It's I named the most Kelly. <laughs> it's gross. So, David, what's the show that you've brought to the Irish Rep? Well, the, the show is, is a biographical uh, show about the life and, and the music of Woody Guthrie, the famous American folk singer, um, who's uh, born in Oklahoma and, and lived in Texas, where I'm from, and then moved all around the country and, and wrote a, a phenomenal number of uh, incredible and uh, timeless uh, folk songs in the uh, the American uh, lexicon thereof, I guess. Uh, he was quite a guy, and uh, so I tried to put together something that would teach folks a little bit about him. Well, that's exactly what it did, because when I was living in Austin, Texas, I remember, like, living in Austin, Texas, everybody you know is a musician. So a bunch of my kind of, the white guys that I knew that were doing kind of folk music, the god... Was, was there anyone who wasn't white who was doing folk music? Um, actually, yes, there was one black woman. But it, it but it's different because like folk music. This is what I find really interesting about Woody Guthrie. So anyway, my point is is that all these white guys worshipped Woody Guthrie. He was God. Bob Dylan was Jesus, also a Jew. Um, Goddamn right. <laughs> I don't know who the Holy Spirit would be. Hank Williams probably. It's not a bad guess. Yeah. So who are these people? White, I mean, I wiki, dead white men. I wikied Woody Guthrie like two seconds ago, and he <laughs> uh, is famous. He's he's but That's he's exciting. Okay, so this is what was crazy. This is the reason that I was like, we have to talk to you. Yeah. Is because he was so clearly a radical, but he wasn't just a radical politically. Like I think in the way he lived his life, he was pretty radical. But all of his songs are like about exactly what's happening right now. He sings about fucking walls and shit. Which what's I his guess greatest hits? Like, what if somebody f- asking for a friend Well, the big one is. is, you know. Well, the, the biggest one is uh, This Land is Your Land. I fucking love that song. Well, good. That's a, <laughs> that's a great song. It is a great song. Which he wrote in New York City, actually, um, at, uh, at a rooming house on the corner of, I think it's 43rd Street and 6th Avenue. Did you oh. think he was better than people? Uh, <laughs> yes, I think he did, actually. Uh, he sounds so on brand for us. Well, <laughs> we he, uh, love him. I think he also made room for folks that, uh, of all sorts, but I do think he, he had, uh, uh, some, uh, proclivities in that direction that, uh, he believed that, that, uh, he was pretty good at what he did. Well, he had to have been, I mean, I don't think you can become an accidental God, can you? <laughs> Well, I don't know. Gosh, that that's a that's a pretty profound question. Uh I I imagine some people have done it. Mm-hmm. Uh but um 
maybe some gods have done it too. I don't know as Let's far as the accidental part. Say yes. I guess, I mean I guess it's possible but like Oprah's not Oprah by some chance occurrence in the universe. Yeah, she hustled mad hard. And there was a vision behind it and I I mean I, it makes sense to me that if Woody, the way Woody Guthrie is speaking is he's he's on a pulpit he's preaching. That's very true, but he did evolve uh quite a bit. Which is very, uh, which is one of the interesting things I hope about uh, his life and about the show and about his music is that he started off. Even he would say that he started off by writing songs that were sort of sarcastic and funny and songs about situations that would make people laugh, even if they were very pointed. Uh, is this for land not really your land and my land? Well, uh, as a matter of fact, that song was written in uh, 1940. As a parody, really. Really? I've taken it literally at face value every time <laughs> I sung it. I well, because it with my heart. <laughs> <coughs> it was in some ways a parody, I guess. But really, it was, it was his response uh, to the song God Bless America. Because the song God Bless America in 1940 was a huge hit. Uh, uh, partly, of course, because of the war going on, going on in uh, Europe. And Woody, like everybody else, heard it on the radio 400,000 times, and it began to drive him kind of crazy because he believed that Irving Berlin uh, was sort of saying through the song, God Bless America, that, um, first of all, that people needed to rely on God, that God was going to take care of everything. And Woody believed that that was in... uh, in evidence of the the 10 years of the depression that had just happened to him and everybody else in America, he believed that we needed to rely a little bit on more on each other so than communist. on God. Yes, uh, I, he tried very hard to be one. Um, but also, I think he, Woody, believed that, uh, that uh, Irving Berlin's song uh, was perhaps saying that, uh, that America's exceptionalism had to do with God. And uh, I think he thought that 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 was not right. And so he wanted to point out that uh, in the verses of This Land is Your Land that are not frequently heard, uh, in the shadow of the steeple, I saw my people by the relief office. I saw my people as they stood there hungry. I stood there wondering, is this land made for you and me? Shit, I literally never heard that part. (laughs) Well, that's most people haven't. Right. So... And, and uh, that's his most famous song. But, of course, there were many others. So Long It's Been Good to Know You and, uh, oh, gosh, um, Oklahoma Hills. And some of the songs that were earlier on, uh, as I say, they're, they're a little sort of more uh, sarcastic and funny. And then a little bit later, uh, in the early 1940s, he began to write songs like Passards of Plenty, uh, which is one of my favorite songs of his uh, which is a song that he wrote during his uh, brief period in the uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, writing songs for the Bonneville Power Administration, which was building the Grand Coulee Dam at the time. And songs like Pastures of Plenty, which are much more sort of pointed protest songs about uh, my land I'll defend with my life if needs be, for my pastures of plenty must always be free. Uh, that's uh, a little more disgusting communist hit people over the head with the hammer Thank and you. sickle. I believe she said filthy, but okay. <laughs> okay, well, uh, than the verses to This Land is Your Land, which, though they are communist, one of the other famous uh, obscure verses is uh, 
there was a big high wall there, and it tried to stop me. And on the sign, it said private property. But on the other side, it didn't say nothing. And that side was made for you and me. And as Woody would say, I ain't a communist necessarily, but I've been in the red all my life. (laughs) He thought that was very funny. But now, have you been including that verse in what he says, because you've been doing the show now 10 years, right? That's right, yeah. Has you been including that, or have you been doing that more recently? Oh, no, that's that's been in there since the very beginning. That is, those two verses that I just recited uh, are the first two verses of This Land is Your Land that I sing in the show. Yeah. Um, so we start off with the, the part that nobody's heard before. And uh, then we, of course, we end the show with a, a rousing rendition of, of that song, which I hope is is a lot of fun for people, even it, it, even though its familiarity, I hope, has been changed a little bit by what they've seen over the preceding two hours. Well, you know, like this show hits on like a couple of things that really shook me, and one of them is this idea of like erasure and an artist catalog. When somebody reaches like a really profound truth, like. Woody, Woody, I almost said Woody Harrelson. <laughs> Close enough, keep going. I loved White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> there's, there's your, there's your accidental god. <laughs> Not so accidental. He does that on purpose. <laughs> he had me at Larry Flint. No, but the idea of taking something that's so true, this land is your land, but then erasing the uglier... Uh, not the uglier, but just the, the the blunter or the harsher elements of that. So that school children, we didn't grow up learning that. Mm-mm. We di- I never heard that in school. Just the fun bits. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's um, Harold Leventhal was Woody's manager, and uh, he was a great guy. He died in uh, 2005, and he was a wonderful man. And I I knew him pretty well, and uh, he's the one who encouraged me to do this. Uh, to put this show together back in... Uh, oh, not this podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that you, too, I'm, I'm sure Mr. Leventhal would have approved. Um, but uh, he was a, a great guy, and he published an awful lot of uh, Woody's uh, stuff in book form, uh, song books and, and uh, books for, uh, of Woody's tunes for children and all kind of stuff like that uh, during the 1950s and the 1960s. And um, so the fact that those three verses were uh, taken out, not exactly expunged, but uh, taken out for the most part, I think had to do with uh, his um, and other people's just uh, wanting to be expedient with being able to publish things uh, that would go into uh, a book that could be disseminated uh, widely but I don't think anybody ever forgot uh, that particular part of the song. I do think you're right that it uh, it was obscured for a long time. But when I was a kid, when I learned a lot of this stuff when I was in, uh, gosh, you know, even nursery school and grammar school, I, I began to learn these songs. Um, and I didn't suspect that my uh, kindergarten teachers in Dallas were socialists, but I guess <laughs> they must have been. Uh, or at least had some left-leaning tendencies that I did not know about as a five-year-old. But uh, just to get started on the path of learning those songs, even if you're only learning the mainstream verses, every once in a while there'll be somebody like me who who goes back and takes a look at what the whole thing is and 
And that's what Harold wanted me to do with this whole show, was to go back and look at where the whole thing came from. Doesn't that mean you've totally made it? If you write a work that then becomes mainstream, but then people take out the kind of like less chill parts and then just learn the really, really fun kid song parts, and then every single person who's ever born after that grows up learning your damn song, then you made it, right? Erasure, no erasure. It's like you, you, you can live forever. Well, I, you know, Pete Seeger had a lot to say about that. He was, um, you know, Woody's uh, partner for uh, years in the music business and then, of course, uh, created an, an incredible body of work uh, himself over many, many more years than, than Woody because he, old Pete, he kept on going till gosh, what, 2014, just the other day. Oh, seems wow. to me, anyway, he, he died. Um, and he had a lot to say about what, happens to songs you know songs he said i i'm sure i won't remember it correctly you can you can google it on the thing find it i'm sure songs are like (laughs) children is that you you create them and you help them along in their early years but then at some point they become independent things and they go on out and people will misuse them and misrepresent them back to you and and so you have the songs like anything else it has a life of its own well that was an interesting thing they somebody requested when he was working for some radio station the rights to include the lyrics in a songbook and they responded woody i think woody and pete seeger probably responded with a letter that said we have the copyright to it and you can use it any way you want to (laughs) yes that's that's uh that's another great quote that i'm sure is given the publishers have, uh, f- you know, fits for a long time. But uh, no, all these, you know, his his greatest songs are are something that I think everybody needs to know, uh, particularly um, as you, you were asking a minute ago, uh, Karen, about, about uh, uh, folk singers of all um, stripes. And they, that's the kind of thing that, that Woody... Uh, had a big chip on his shoulder about was that he, long before uh, what we call the modern civil rights movement, he and music publishers in New York, Moses Ash and, and uh, Larry Richmond and, and even Harold Leventhal, all these people, they were championing all kinds of American music. And as uh, during the 19, I'm going to have to say 1960s, but it's just a guess. Somebody asked Louis Armstrong about folk music and about the folk music revival or surge or whatever you wanted to call it. And what did he think of that? And Louis, uh, who I cannot imitate, said, all music is folk music. I don't see no horses listening to it. (laughs) <laughs> and so he believed that everything that comes out of everybody is music for other people. And, the, you know, the word folks is just another word for people. So folks like Brownie McGee and Josh White and Blind Sonny Terry and Odetta and Tracy Chapman and, you know, people like that. And Cisco Houston and, and uh, Woody himself and... and Pete Seeger and Burl Ives and all these people all make this giant soup that it's all folk music. Um, And those folks I'm describing, of course, are known as folk musicians. But people like Louis Armstrong and Frank Sinatra and folks like that knew that it really is just a spectrum. You know, everything's a continuum. 
Totally. But now that's interesting that you bring up sort of like the civil rights movement because Woody's dad was a Klansman, right? Well, <coughs> that's uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, <laughs> as I was saying a minute ago to you right before we started, uh, there was a time not too long ago when every and well, I'm, it's a gross generalization. We but, love those. Yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> my favorite that, type of generalization, <laughs> <a> gross one. <laughs> that there was a time not too long ago, fifty years ago, say, when almost every white man in the South was a Democrat and voted Democrat, and that changed over time to what it is today which is, of course, it's a mixture of all things, of all people, and it always is. Much the same, uh, not long after um, the, uh, the Civil War, when Oklahoma uh, was a territory, and for a while, you know, it was Indian, it was Indian territory for a long time, and then in the uh, latter part of the 19th century, it was opened up to settlement, um, and we could do a whole nother cast pod about that um and uh and people of all colors streaming into oklahoma there were when uh charlie guthrie uh got there to okima uh there it was during the land boom days really and not too far away there was another town that had been settled by mostly by freed slaves and quite common in uh, newly settled places in those days, in the back half of the 19th century, there were black communities and white communities um, where people went and, and settled. And in right around the turn of the 18th and the 19th, uh, excuse me, the 19th and the 20th century, um, lots of folks were involved in organizations that, uh, from the perspective of 2017, looked pretty awful. And they were pretty awful. Um, and Charlie Guthrie being an adjunct member of the, uh, of the Ku Klux Klan, which in those days was a, uh, uh, strangely enough, was really a legitimate political party. And they had marches down the main drag in Washington, D.C. and all Crazy. kind of uh, very, very strange stuff. Um, but Woody, uh, trying to absorb these things, as I say, he evolved as a, as a, not only as a, as a person, but also as a kind of a representative of that, the kind of a wide open Oklahoma uh, thing. And then after he got out to California and began to see things a little differently, and then he got to New York and began to see things a little differently again. And all of these things went into his life, his father and his uh, history as a erstwhile politician and a merchant and uh, kind of a lawyer without a law degree. Wow, it was crazy town back then. Well, that's... You just that's do whatever the hell you wanted well, all day long. Well, that's <laughs> right. And from the wide open uh, <laughs> things of that, and his on his the other side, his uh, maternal grandmother was a school teacher uh, in a one-room log cabin school. And uh, so he had a... Uh, Woody came up with a very, very interesting education from all directions and the amazing thing about him is that is the 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 work that came out of him the songs and the poetry and the and the observations that came out of him and out of his life influenced not i, w I wouldn't say equally but influenced by people as diverse 
as uh, his dad, who had this strange career that included some tenuous connection to the Ku Klux Klan, and Will Gear and Ed Robbins and people that he met in California who were dyed in the wool communists. You know. Did his dad or did his dad not murder someone? I thought he was a murderer. He was implicated in a lynching, uh-huh. according to Wikipedia. Well, he says that he is a flat-out murderer. Okay, well, I would, crazy. I might take exception to Wikipedia. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but uh, if, if Julian Assange were here, uh-huh. maybe he and I could have a discussion. Okay, I'm asking for a Jew. That's the only reason I want to know. Not yeah, even for me personally. They don't stop at Jew after they get through all the blocks. It's no, true. They don't. <laughs> um, but that's that's interesting because even still like the show the show is very white like i i assume the cast is white is that an correct assumption yes having seen the show i don't know because sometimes you like think somebody's white and they're not white but they like present as white so it is for white people yeah because you always do that <laughs> you always identify people as white and then it turns out they like no we're not or latina <laughs> yeah or whatever um but anyway, my, my point being, even though, like, that's the type of thing that generally annoys me in a show, but mm-hmm. seeing white people, like, I think Woody's work is so special because it's very specifically rooted in, in this whiteness. It's white-centered, but not in a way that it erases other people. All of his observations are as a white person encountering things like workers' rights, like migrant workers, for the first time as he kind of goes on this journey. And... What I liked about this show in particular, and I think this is to like the dramaturgical credit, if that's you, is that the songs, you see the journey, the chronological biographical journey expressed through the music. So the observations are are very white, but they're but not in a like bad what? way. But like what? About land? Well, well, about land, but also this is like early to mid 20th century America and he's looking at the West and this is like right post-industrial revolution. It's the Dust Bowl. So everybody is like just fleeing, trying to go West. Well, yeah, it was barren. The land was barren. So seeing desperate people, I think is what was compelling to me is his observations of desperate people. And he noted differences, at least according to what you present on this show, according to what people were experiencing kind of based on their identity like he noticed those differences well i think he he certainly as a as a white man i do believe sincerely woody and myself too as a as a white man but i'm i'm talking through woody in the show is that part of what he learned when he left uh Pampa, Texas, which is really sort of where he grew up. I mean, he he started off in Okemo, Oklahoma, where he saw this incredible mixture of people. And he says, you know, ballad singers of all kinds and colors, let their voices fill the air. And I sat on curbstones and carpenters with my new French harp, and there wasn't none of it. I didn't soak up. And he talked a lot about uh, Native Americans and, and black people coming into Okemo and being in Okemo when he was a little boy and hearing their influences musically in particular. And then in Pampa, Texas, um, I think there there was probably a little bit less of that. Where's Pampa? West Pampa Texas? is, is uh, up north, uh, not too, it's in the, it's in the panhandle. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's quite a place. It's like, you know, 
<laughs> and uh, what's up with the Panhandle? Tornado Alley. Oh, oh yes, yes. Well, Amarillo and Lubbock and, and uh, places like that up there. Edder Junction, all kinds of wonderful places in the Panhandle of Texas. <laughs> um, um, uh, there's a great song. I'm a ding dong daddy from Dumas, <laughs> which is not a Woody Guthrie song. But anyway, um, Pampa, I think, was probably a little more uh, Lily White uh, in during Woody's time there. Uh, but he was even while he was there. It, it's it's written about him all the time that he spent all of his time at the library reading things. Uh, he read all kinds of religious. Uh, books, not just the Bible, but but the uh, the Quran and the and the Bhagavad Gita and all these other kinds of things. That everything he could get his hands on, he would read. That had to do with uh, sort of philosophical expressions and and as I say, religion, but also you know uh, the the cultures that he did not know about. And so when he got to California <clears throat> in 1937 and began singing on the radio out there, it was mostly people who responded to him were mostly displaced Oklahomans and Texans and everybody who had gone out there during the Dust Bowl. But he, at that time, was being influenced by these labor movement people, Will Gear and Ed Robbins and, and uh, J. Frank Burke and, and other people like that, who were, they were the... Um, at that at that moment, they were the top guys in uh, in some of the top guys in the labor movement uh, that had included um, very famously Joe Hill and Eugene Debs and people like that b- before them. And uh, Woody began <laughs> uh, uh, circulating in in those our circles of people, and that's what's kind of incredible is the stuff that. That this real, honest to God, uh, working class, white, Oklahoma, uh, Texas guy became, with the influence of these other people and with the influence of his travels, starting with uh, this music, Southern Appalachian music, really, that comes from uh, the. Uh, Scots-Irish tradition and, uh, and Anglo-Celtic uh, world and what he did as a poet with all of those influences is why we are sitting here. But also, it's a, he was very influenced by black spirituals. Absolutely. You sing sure. This Train is Bound for Glory in the show. That's right. Um, and so that's what's interesting. And I also read that This Land is Your Land ref- refer, like references some other gospel song. Well, it's actually a Presbyterian hymn. So it's a white people hymn? Yeah. Is that yes. it? <laughs> Presbyterian <laughs> means white. <laughs> well, I mean, not exclusively, but yes. <laughs> um, but it, so that's the Scots-Irish. Yeah, I mean, because that Appalachian music is like, you might as well be in, in like Galway listening yeah. to people. It's the exact same sound that comes out of both places. Yes. Well, not the exact same, but it's like very, very oh, similar. And the movements are similar too. They do a lot of the dancing with just the legs, not with the arms down well, there. Well, that's just me. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I am me as yeah. well. I am the worst. <laughs> but what I am can very w- white. What, what, so I have a couple of questions. What can Woody, wh- what does Woody say about what's happening right now? What do you think if Woody were here right now, he would make of this past year that has kind of turned everything upside down, I think. 
Well, that's that's a question that a couple of people have asked me this year, uh, and it is, and every time I, I've tried to answer it, I think I've probably fallen short. Um, I I think on the one hand, Woody uh, would probably be pretty angry with a lot of what's going on right now, but in another way, I think as my father would have said that that uh, Woody right now would be in high cotton because this is the kind of place he wanted to be, was he wanted to be fighting uh, against the man. And he, of course, liked to be on the successful end of things and to be succeeding, but he also, he always saw himself, I think, as a little guy, because he was, he was a little guy, you know, he was, that's one of, his sister, Mary Jo, is a, is a friend of mine, uh, Woody's little sister, Mary Jo, she's still alive in a nursing home out in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And she's a wonderful lady. I just spoke to her on the phone yesterday, I guess. And uh, she always tells me the same thing. She says, says you sound just like him. You're just too tall. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he always thought of himself as a little guy fighting for the little guy. And so I think right now uh, it's... I mean, every every night when we stand out out in the lobby uh, after the show, um, hawking our our CDs uh, to raise money for the Huntington's Disease Society of America, uh, people come up to me every night and say it's so incredible how much of these, how many of these lyrics and how much of his poetry seems like it was written yesterday afternoon. Instead well, of isn't that kind of what I mean by like that's what makes a god? That's why George Carlin is a god. Well, it's because what he said in 1970 applies to what we're dealing with sure. today. Well, what do you mean by god? Is a god someone who creates something that outlives them, so they're kind of immortal, like a god? Well, I mean, I mean, not to get religious. I know God's a loaded word; it could offend people. But I think God's in all of us. But like. Somebody who leaves a religion behind, something that people can subscribe to and derive morals from. And I think that it's really easy to do that, to, to just guide a way of life. I think it's easy to do that with Woody. Well, I think that's, that's very well put, actually. I, I, it's, it is possible to do that accidentally, I guess. And, and that I don't think he did it accidentally. I think he tried really hard. But I do think, I mean, he wrote, they say the the latest estimates that I have heard from his daughter Nora, who's running Woody Guthrie Publications now, is that Woody wrote somewhere upwards of three thousand songs, or sets of lyrics, or poetry that he had some tune to. That most of the tunes are not really known. He he wrote, as Harold Leventhal would have said, Woody wrote a thousand songs. And that's probably about right, that he actually wrote and sat down and everybody knew what they were or, you know, uh, and recorded somewhere around a thousand songs, recorded in some way, shape or form. But then these other 2000 things that he wrote, some of them, as I say, have a tune in mind and some of them don't. And Woody Guthrie Publications has been putting those out uh, with tunes by new folks, Jonathan Brook, Billy Bragg. Um, Ani DeFranco, people like that, have been writing music to go with Woody's lyrics. But in and amongst those 3,000 sets of lyrics and, and letters and essays and everything else, there is a huge amount. 
that you really can't just discard or say this is not so good. There's a very large amount of it that is just amazingly spot on in a not just now but 10 years ago 20 years ago and therefore in my opinion 10 years from now and 20 years from now and 50 years from now it'll still be there as something that you really can get behind almost like a religion there's what, this, oh sorry, no, no. what does it feel like for you to like carry this dead guy around all the time is it crazy <laughs> well uh i I don't think it's um crazy. Uh crazy it's is a, I mean I just I don't a general term we like to use. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't I'm not really doing an impersonation right. of Woody Godfrey because I'm too tall. Um <laughs> fair. And, and, and all of the characters that the four of us play on stage, we're we're not trying to impersonate people. Helen Russell who plays many roles, one of the main ones being Woody's mother, uh Nora Nora Bell Tanner. Oh, uh, she's great. The blonde she's, woman. Yes, yeah, she's, she's, she's amazing. Everyone's great. But well, she, I really, really loved watching her play the mom. <laughs> but she's, she's not really trying to impersonate Woody's mother or the symptoms of Huntington's chorea or any of those things. We're, I guess you would say, it's more like rather than carrying somebody around, it's, it's you want to embody what they were trying to say or do or be. And... So that, to me, is quite an honor every time I get the opportunity to do it um, because he, what he wanted to say and be is quite amazing uh, stuff. Uh, you know, I'm sure in your, your uh, Wikipedia thing... Uh, it's called you, research. You, <laughs> thank you. You found out that there are, there are, sure, there are quite a few unsavory things about uh, Woody Guthrie that he uh, was quite a womanizer. and, and uh, We find it savory. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I've, so is well, Karen, <laughs> newly. <laughs> and, Not to uh, brag. and he was very famously, Pete Seeger used to describe him all the time with the word ornery. Which is a very good American He sounds like us, word. the podcast, the man. <laughs> what? It might actually and be. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and I had a woman a long time ago at a hootenanny. We, we do hootenannies everywhere we go, you know. And I had a, a woman who waited around all the way to the end of the hootenanny because she wanted to tell me something about Woody Guthrie because her brother had been a young man in, in Greenwich Village when Woody was around. And apparently a... a guitar singer and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, wannabe folk singer guy. And he had played with Woody, and, and Woody was not very nice to him and told him to, you know, shut up or something, you know. <laughs> and because when I'm on stage, of course, what I'm doing, you, you have to remember the title of the show is Woody Says, because it's a lot of it's autobiographical. And so Woody, an awful lot of the time, Woody made himself out to be quite the hero. And he, obviously, because he was a human being, he wasn't always quite the hero. Well, this lady wanted me to know in her Queensian accent, which I can <laughs> imitate a little bit, she said, I just want you to know the person was very different from the persona. <laughs> that was good. So, and that's true. Uh, I'm, I'm sure because Woody, uh, 
wrote about himself in quite glowing terms a lot of the time. <laughs> and there are many reports from many quarters that he was not always a, a very nice guy. Well, he knew he was a god. He knew he was creating a religion and he was just right about it. Like there's a lot of people that try that and you're just like, oh, you're an asshole. But he happened to be right about it. But the it. flip side of talent is arrogance. People who know they're talented fall prey to cockiness all the time. And it's like, thank you. Not that I'm But it's really hard to not like if you have a little bit of, oh, maybe I'm good at a thing to not immediately go to. Um, well, I'm the best. Well, it's, uh, you know, as as uh, Muhammad Ali said, you know, it ain't bragging if you can do it. That's true. That is true. And it's also interesting. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I was just going to say. I, I think you're you're right uh, that that there is this this uh, part of uh, self uh, realization that if you know you've written something as you know, like this land is your land, it's hard not at some point not to get caught up in the fact that you have done that. Yeah, I mean, you know, and like that reaches so far. I remember, do you know who Sarah Shulman is, the playwright? Yeah. Yeah, so she's a friend of the show. She and Karen argue about Israel, and Sarah's right, Karen's wrong. And then, but um, she, she recently posted. Open to interpretation. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> but she said she thinks that should be the national anthem. And that was the first time that I had ever really listened to the song kind of start to finish. Um, I didn't really like pay attention to the lyrics quite as much as I did though I think it's because you just start the show with them maybe and it's it's a different thing they didn't hit me the same way I remember listening to it and thinking oh yeah that, that is a nice song it's kind of call me bullshit but it's cool <laughs> yeah. but um but yeah no that's interesting and then also what you're describing about Woody because I, I do think your show acknowledges but doesn't um really invest in the darker aspects of his biography um like his parenting, his his views on being a father, which ha having read about now after the fact, he said he had to really work hard to remember to be a dad, pretty much. That's a paraphrase. Well, that's that's uh, certainly a huge part of his life that, uh, you know, if I, uh, by the time we get around to Act 7, we might be able to get to a lot of these things because you're going to do a two-hour biography of somebody. You're bound to leave some stuff out. And as I often tell people, I, I've left out an entire wife, uh, his, <laughs> his third wife. Um, and there's, there's not any reason for that, really, certainly on my part. Do you hate women? Uh, <laughs> uh, over and above the fact that reading his autobiographical material, he didn't write a lot about his third wife. And uh, his child, uh, Lorena Lynn, with her, whereas he did write... Lorena Lynn? Uh -huh. Like Loretta? Lorena. Why Lorena Lynn? Was her, oh, that was her name. Like she had yes. two names. Her Lorena. last name wasn't Lynn. No, no, Lorena Lynn Got Guthrie. It. Right, Got yes. I forget. Southern, Southern. <laughs> I forget. I was like, why is she named like Loretta Lynn? Oh. oh. Is that the one that like didn't never chilled with him at all and then died young? Or that it, somebody else? It, it, like she like didn't like spend that much time with him, and then she died when she was pretty young. I don't know. I just oh the the child. Yes, yes, she died in an automobile accident. That is very yes. sad. Was that Lorena? Uh huh. Oh. Yes, yes. But his the the bulk of the material in the show, as I say, about I would say probably about sixty five or seventy percent of the script of the lines that are said on stage are things that Woody Guthrie wrote. That's why I call myself the divisor and not the writer. Um, 
the uh, that because really what I did was to edit everything together, and and uh, I certainly wrote a, you know a lot of things to make things go together and to make things make sense. Um, and it's all put together around the ballad of Tom Joad, which Woody said was his greatest song, uh, which is a, a recapitulation, of course, of uh, the Grapes of Wrath. And so the the biographical material that is included in the show uh, is representative of the biographical material, uh, the autobiographical material that he wrote about most. So that's why in the two hours of the show, there are some things that get the short shrift and they're bound to be. And part of the reason for that, not always, but part of the reason for that is because Woody himself gave them the short shrift. That's such a, that's why the show works so well. Cause you're not okay. Cause I was trying to figure out what it is. Cause it's, it's very simple. That's one thing that I think works really well is that it's four people Everybody's playing all the instruments. You see everything happening. So you're aware of the artifice constantly. So that allows you to sort of give that up in a way that some plays try to hide all that. And then the other thing is just that because you let him tell the story, you don't have to worry about leaving things out because it really is what he says. It goes all goes back to the title. So... It didn't annoy me that the things when I was reading some of the darker stuff and you even did say, I think maybe it was in the at the very end, kind of like off script. You said something about um, him being a man who did indefensible things, I think was the word that you used, which made me go seek them out because what I know of artists and really great artists is that they're super selfish. I mean, I'm right here. That I'm staring <laughs> at one right now. Um, you literally kept us waiting for 23 <laughs> minutes. I don't want to say anything. I only kept David waiting for five. So you're a dick <laughs> <laughs> and you're a better artist, I guess is what that means. It's proportional for noticing. But I saw this really interesting documentary about trans people. It wasn't very interesting. It was actually like super capitalist. <laughs> Woody, Woody would have hated it. It was like produced by Mac cosmetics, but it, there was some beauty, in it because it was real people's stories but there was there's a trans minister up in Northampton Massachusetts and he said something that I I've been thinking about a lot lately but it really rang true about Woody is that the prophet is both the perpetrator and the victim so that's I think why some people like like Bob Dylan like like Woody like James Baldwin. Oh, are okay. Able I thought you were going to say me. Oh, Karen okay, Margolis. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> forgiven. Are, are able <laughs> to do that. And I wonder if, if you sort of have spent any time, it, not in preparation for actually writing the show, but it, for embodying Woody, kind of marinating in the darkness about him. Well, I, I think p- perhaps. I, I guess... It is. It's certainly evident when I, when you study Woody Guthrie as as much as I have um, over the last few years that that you're gonna you're gonna find out about it. And you're gonna you're gonna get to those places where you you wonder um, what it was that when he that caused him to behave so differently in similar situations uh, like the birth of his first children, uh, Gwendolyn and uh, Sue and Will Rogers Jr. 
I mean, uh, Will Rogers uh, Guthrie, um, uh, when he was in with his first family, and he, as you say, he had to think about it and uh, to being a father. And he was traveling. He would go down and he took, you know, famously, you know, buy a pack of cigarettes. And he'd come back three weeks later or whatever it was. And he was traveling all over the place and and uh, got, you know, got some money and bought a car, but then didn't make any payments on the car. And then the car was <laughs> repossessed and all these kinds of kooky things. That asshole, that, Well, you know, <laughs> but then with his second family, when he was here in, in New York City with Marjorie, when he doted on his daughter, Kathy Ann, and wrote things about him, drew cartoons of, of uh, while, they, while Marjorie was pregnant, he was always drawing these cartoons of, of her pregnant with, with the child that he described as Railroad Pete, which that's <laughs> what he always said, you know, because he was like gonna be a hobo, you know, like Woody <laughs> and everything. And, but then, and then when Kathy Ann died, it's, that, I mean, you know, reading and reading and reading and reading and all, all these things, it, it obviously that had such a tremendous impact on him. And but even though Marjorie had as well, that he, his behavior with the two different families is really different, obviously, because there's different situations. But it is, that's the kind of thing that, to me, as an actor is that's the thing to try to find to see how you can do it and and then his third family which i even though i don't get to do it on the stage it's yet another set of you know there's a story of of uh, uh annie van kirk who was his third wife coming back to their flat with the um when she had gone to work and she comes home and Woody is drunk asleep on the couch and the child is is in you know dirty diaper on the floor (laughs) and all four burners are on on the stove because it's freezing cold you know and and she walks into this and he says you know hey how you doing or something you know or didn't even wake up and so just those things that you say that that's pretty dark stuff to think of I'm, I'm a man myself i'm you know i'm 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 i am not a father but i i'm a grown man and and just to think of how could anyone behave like that that's amazing and how can i portray on the stage an actor who or, or an actor in the real sense of the word who does things like that who on the other hand wrote I ain't got no home. I'm just a rambling round, just a wandering worker. I go from town to town. You know, and it's, it's, it's things like that that, as you say, are they're almost like a religion, but they've been put across by this guy who has this other side of his behavior that's unconscionable. Well, do you think that those things are in opposition to each other? Do you think that those are kind of the same thing? Because people's, in my experience, I hang out with comics, so that's just the specific artist that I am familiar with, but people's shitty qualities are their best qualities. Like, people's, like, not, I mean, look, murder's not your best quality, right? But, like, but... Tell that to OJ. (laughs) Touche. Okay, sick burn. Um, But, like, people's impulsiveness and their, you know, kind of emotional 
reactions and stuff like that makes people really funny it also makes them a pain in the ass to hang out with and deal with and be friends with a lot of the time but those are people's most like um creatively like generative qualities you know what i mean in addition to sucking sure sure and but it's the what is it that comes out of that is it is it the is it humor that's funny for a second and everybody forgets or is it something like George Carlin that goes on and people remember mm -hmm. as being funny uh, and profound mm -hmm. and I don't know I, I that's a that's a great point I, I'm I am neither funny nor profound, so I, I don't know if I can actually answer it. But we decide who's funny and profound. Fair enough. <laughs> that's why we're here. So that's interesting. To pivot a little bit to you, how did you end up doing this? Like, what was it about Woody that made you, as an artist, feel like you needed to invest this much of your career and life into him? Well, I keep I keep saying uh, to that that it's amazing to me that this music came out of the man that lived that life. And Mr. Leventhal uh, encouraged me, as I say, to, to put this together and to try to do something that was biographical about Woody. And he and I talked about it to, you know, not, uh, you know, for hours and hours or years and years, but we did talk about it a good bit that, Woody's, there are a lot of shows about Woody Guthrie and about his music and about his life and times and the depression and the labor movement and all that stuff. And they're all, they're all great. Um, I've done several of them. I wrote a children's show uh, called This Land is Your Land, which is really what this came out of. But what I guess I, what I really wanted people to know and where Mr. Leventhal pointed me in this direction was the more you know about the guy's life, the more amazing and profound and, and to the point the music is because the, I mean, sketchy as the show has to be because it's, you know, the whole life in, in two hours and it's obviously therefore not the whole life, but it is incredible that what his power to me was that he took what he, not only what he observed that was happening to people in the Dust Bowl and in New York City on, on the Bowery and in the Mercer Marines uh, when he was sailing around with guys and, and uh, going to North Africa and all these weird exotic places to him. He took things that he saw and he also filtered his own personal experience into things that were no longer personal but his poetry is to me it transcends the personal and makes it to the universal and that that was his the more you know about his biography the the easier it is to see that so what about you though when you were growing up i mean you sound like you come from brutal racists with that <laughs> accent <laughs> but what were your people like were they were they music people or what <laughs> well gosh that's that's uh that's a good point i guess i could uh reach back to many of my uh uh, immediate forebears and and find all of the examples of all of those things for you um but uh my parents were wonderful people 
who were very encouraging of all of us. I have uh, two brothers and a sister uh, to uh, pursue everything and anything that we wanted to do. And um, my father would say, if he was here now, that, well, you know, in about 1957, I bought a mandolin from Steers and Roebuck for $17 and a half. And I learned how to play glow, little glow worm, and I put it in the closet. And uh, then, luckily for the rest of us, my oldest brother proved to be a natural musician and picked the thing up and started playing it. And so then we all started playing things. And my mother was a, uh, she had majored in English literature at the University of Mississippi. And uh, all of my, my people, mostly my relatives, are all from, uh, from Mississippi and Louisiana. And, uh, but I grew up in, in Texas. And I, it was the influence of many people uh, th- that, uh, that got me here, I guess. But being the youngest of four children, I'm sure that I was always clamoring for attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's kind of what got me on the, the track to be an actor, I guess. And uh, because everybody in my family played music and sang, uh, that's what I started doing. I sang in the choir when I was a kid at church and, and uh, wound up continuing to do that and then i just sort of followed the path of least resistance and that's the path of least the path of least (laughs) resistance was musical theater well (laughs) i guess so i i i played music i first came to new york in 19 i think it was nine i was you you and i were talking about this tommy a a little while ago Uh, i first came to new york to play music in 1984 and i played down on bleaker street i played in a lot of the joints down there are you do is it can i ask you that (laughs) why of course you can okay um i just turned 60 the other day shut up mazel tov well thank you happy birthday thank you very much and uh so i i played down there i had a great time i've i played in places you know and all those joints and uh, but then i kind of i was playing music for many years starting when i was in college and and uh for for money um and then, um, once again, at the at the uh, uh, at the suggestion of my my dad, he said, "Well, you know, if you're going to make your living on the stage, maybe you ought to learn something about it." And so I went to acting school in in London in uh, 1986 and 87, and uh, came back to New York and immediately got a job playing the guitar in the theater. And uh, so I was like in the pit or in the show? No, no, in the show. Oh. The show. It was a great show. As a matter of fact, it was a show about Woody Guthrie <laughs> and Woody Guthrie's music. It's been easy, schmeezy, loving you, I'm telling you what. <laughs> and uh, it was a wonderful show that I did many times over the early part of my career. And it was pretty much like what I had done before, except there were benefits. You got health insurance and, and a pension. Are you kidding me? This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Would you live in upside down land? <laughs> <laughs> so... I, so since then, since 1987-88, I've been uh, I've been working mostly in in musical theater, and and uh, every once in a while I get hired to play in the pit. I did a show at the Public Theater last year called Southern Comfort. Oh, the uh, trans musical. That's right. Yeah. Yes, I was the musical director of of that show. Oh, cool! Yeah. It was a musical about two trans people, right? Well, it was actually about more than that, but uh, more people than that. It was a, a, a little group of uh, I believe it was six. Uh, transgender people from uh, Tacoa, Georgia, that had been the subject of a documentary film, mm. and uh, 
then it was made into a musical and uh, I did it in workshops and and uh, then they they uh, finally brought it to the public and we had a, a fabulous time with it. It was a fantastic show and uh, Annette O'Toole and Jeff McCarthy were the two main characters. Yeah, yeah, and I remember well neither of them are trans so people were pissed off about it. Well, that's Initially, that's true, right? which is which is very interesting to me and we'll have to have another cast pod about that sometime <laughs> yeah no that is interesting i don't want to derail that but so you've like built this sort of like faggoty existence without being a gay man in the theater so i wonder what the experience of he can say that he's a huge fag yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> i mean you can too you have a pass <laughs> it'd be great for ratings <laughs> what he says faggot <laughs> no but you you're, you're in these like I'm wondering what you like coming from Texas, exposed to Woody, spending ten years of your life at least with Woody. Well, thirty if your first job I'm was trying. really yeah, in a Woody sure. show. What has this done to your own sort of politics? What do you think about the world? Because you seem to be poised to have some sort of a different perspective. Wow. Um, well, I would say that uh, just like Mr. Guthrie, I, I imagine that uh, my sensibilities have evolved over the years. Um, Winston Churchill, I think, didn't he say that if you were not a liberal when you were young, you had no heart, and if you're not a conservative when you're old, you have no mind? And to me, I, uh, interestingly enough, because of where I'm from, perhaps, and uh, the history of my life, a little bit like Woody, I've, I guess I've kind of gone the other way around. <laughs> it, uh, I'm sure that I was much more conservative when I was younger than I am now. I, I think by today's standards, uh, I would count as never having been a conservative um, because today's standards are a little different um, than uh, the 100 years ago when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> but, Thank uh, you. <laughs> but yes, certainly things have changed. I mean, I've, I've uh, experienced a lot in the theater, as you point out, uh, with the, uh, the rights and concerns of uh, all different kinds of folks. I mean, chorus boys are filthy. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, I had my first experience with chorus boys, I guess, was, uh, was when I was in the Will Rogers Follies back in uh, 1992. Were you in it with Marla Maples? Well, as a matter of fact, I was. No. Uh, yes. Donald's ex-wife. That's right. She and I were very good friends. And, and Are you uh, still? Well, I, I haven't gotten a Christmas card from her for a few years, but I did for a long time. We corresponded and... And uh, I was around when Tiffany was born, and and uh, Marla and I did uh, did the Will Rogers Follies together a couple of times after it closed on Broadway. We did it on tour, and uh, her name was above the title, Marla Maples in the Will Rogers Follies, directed by Patrick Brown, blah, 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 blah. and then way down at the bottom is it, and David Lutkin as Will Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Were you Will Rogers on... Broadway as on well? Broadway, I was the understudy for uh, for uh, I came in to the show after it had been running for a year, um, and I played the part of Wiley Post, and I understudied uh, the role of Will Rogers while it was being played by Mac Davis and and Larry Gatlin. Oh wow, Larry Gatlin, good Texan. Did you yes, get to play fine. him? Did you play? Yeah, the yeah, oh yeah, okay. uh, yeah. So wait, what was it like work? I don't want to derail this too far because we're almost <laughs> done. We have to play a quick game. But what was it like working with Marla? Yeah, go go. Well, Marla she was can't sing. And Marla can't was act. very sweet. No, no, no. She did a wonderful job. She uh, <laughs> she had no real. Uh, Why are you lying? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm really not. She did a she did a very good job. 
she, as you say, she's not really an actress, not really a dancer, not really a singer, but she was playing the perfect role for that person because she's in the this imaginary Ziegfeld Follies, of course, is what the show is. It's still happening. I just did it in Salt Lake City uh, just a couple of months ago playing Will Rogers and I had a wonderful time at the Pioneer Theater in Salt Lake City. Anyway, um, but Marla was great because she's supposed to be where the, her character is supposed to be where she is because she is Mr. Ziegfeld's favorite. That's the title of her, the name of her character. We rehearsed for weeks together and she was, she was great. She had no delusions about anything, but she did have one thing that she knew, which was that she sold tickets. Did you meet Donald? Oh, yeah, many times. Oh, yeah, what did you think of him? Oh, Lord. But that man should be the president of the United <laughs> no, States, if no, I know anything. I, I didn't think that. <laughs> uh, but I will have to have another... Well, just give us like an <laughs> overview. What <laughs> session about so that? So he was already probably plotting. This is early to mid-90s? Uh, yeah, 1992, 93, yeah. Okay, so... 94. So, yeah, this is art of the deal, like right after all that, right? That's right. Okay, so what was he like? Was he a larger-than-life presence? <sighs> Uh, well, no, not to me. Uh, I, I have to say, I'll, I'll quote, um, when I was in acting school in London, I was fascinated by the review of his book, The Art of the Deal, in uh, the London Times. And I do remember one sentence from the, re from the review. Uh, I think it was the first sentence. It said, <laughs> it said, Art of the Deal, Diary of a Nobody. <laughs> Wait, did you ever go to their house for dinner? Uh, no, no, I never went to the house for dinner, but I did play softball a few times. And and, uh, and as I say, Don, you know, we um, I did the show with, with Marla a couple of times, including in Dallas, Texas. We did in my hometown. And uh, I've, uh, well, I was talking to my brother this morning and wondering whether I should recount this story on your show. Uh, but I, I, I think I can. I, I think it'll be all right yeah, if I have thanks, time. brother. Yes, of course. Right. Please. The stage is yours, so, literally. <laughs> well, because it is. I, every word of it is true. And I don't think Mr. Trump uh, would object to me saying any of these things. So if I get hauled off to jail, it's for some other reason. Oh, all um, of these podcasts are evidence. But that's, Well, there you go. <laughs> But uh, Marla and I had done the show together uh, on Broadway and, and uh, in Atlanta, I was, uh, which was amazing because she, uh, she's from Georgia. You know, she's from Atlanta, Georgia, I believe Atlanta or somewhere in the vicinity there. We did the show at the Fox Theater in Atlanta for two weeks. It's 4,500 seats, and it was completely sold out every night. That's a lot you know, for a couple of weeks. And it wasn't because of me that it was sold out. It was because of her. Well, after that, we did the show in Dallas, which is my hometown, and we did pretty well. <laughs> I don't remember if we were completely sold out, but it certainly wasn't because of me that we were selling tickets, although I do think some of my old high school friends came and cheered me on from, from uh, their seats. But we had a, there was an opening night party, and it's one of the only times in my life that I've ever gone to the after party because Mr. Trump was in town and he threw the party and he threw the after party. And I've, as I say nowadays, I'm sure someone else paid for it. 
but he threw both of these. He was the host of both of these parties. And uh, I had some good friends who were in the show with me there. And so we went, to, of course, to the party. And then and my parents were there. It was opening night. My mother and father were both still alive. And they, they came. And and, uh, and then I hauled them with uh, <clears throat> myself and my friend. We went to the after party. So at the after party, there were very few people there, of course, because this is the after party. You know, this is the fancy elite, whatever it is. But I figured I'd be able to get in because my, I was playing the title character anyway. And uh, so there we are with, and I, I, I'm not going to name any names because it was Dallas, Texas, and, of course, that's where I grew up. My father um, was in business in Dallas, and most of the other men who were in the room were people that he detested. Um, my father was not a socialist, but he was not a Republican. He was a he was a free thinker. He used to brag that he never voted for a major party candidate for president. Oh, I love your father. Tommy uh, yeah. and your father would have gotten along for so, ruining uh, elections. <laughs> so there we are at this at this after party with all these people that he, my dad, kind of does not like very much. But everybody's trying to be nice and, you know, everything. And so at some point, Marla Maples, being a good southern uh, lady, turns to Mr. Trump <laughs> and says says, Don, this is Ruth and Pete Lutkin, and introduces my parents. And Mr. Trump turns to my mother and said something to her that she remembered forever that she just thought was one of the strangest things that she had ever heard, and she thought it was just funny as can be. And she, my mother, was very, very Southern. She grew up in, well, she was actually born in California, but she grew up in Mississippi. And she had a wonderful Southern accent, uh, which I will do my best to imitate. When <laughs> uh, she just thought that this was the funniest thing ever, that this man, whoever this guy was, would say this about her son, David. When he turned to my mother and, and said, and I'll, I'll, I can't really imitate Mr. Trump, but I'll, I'll try a little bit with his gestures, which everybody will be able to see on the, on the, the cast thing. He turned to my mother and said, David's great. David's great. It's going to be a star. It's going to be a big star. All he needs is a good scandal. <laughs> oh my god he was right and well <laughs> been that guy. but that it's so interesting to me because i've never i've never had a good scandal i i hope not on wood um say something but, racist right now we'll yes help thank you. you right right 30 seconds left <laughs> but that to me is so fascinating and so totally off the subject of what we're doing here but in a way not is that that's how he has lived his life is looking for the way to be famous and he has accomplished that through scandal it's the only path he could find that's right he's a different type of god honestly i think he's changed the way we engage media he's a paradigm shifter of how we do anything ever yeah it's like terrifying to think of that but i mean he's a paradigm shifter in the way Hitler was a paradigm shifter. I don't mean that. I think he t he's taking us in the same direction politically, like hard right and really quickly. But I just think, yeah, there's no coming back from this moment. It's really just exposed a lot. Well, of you know, Woody wrote a song about Donald Trump's father, 
No. You did? Yeah. Frederick? Yes. Oh my God, let's have it. Yes. All right. So this is how we bring all this stuff back together. I'm glad I thought of that. You're the best. Right. And actually, I've, I've written some of it down oh, because, hell yeah. because this is some of the stuff that has never been, well, it has been now because it was discovered by this fellow, Will Kaufman, who wrote a wonderful book called Woody Guthrie, American Radical Patriot. That's a, it's a great book. Sounds like it was written about me and, personally. Uh, <laughs> he discovered this uh, lyric and uh, before it, there's a little bit of a preface that says that Woody wrote. It says, I suppose old man Trump knows just how much racial hate he stirred up in the blood pot of human hearts when he drawed that color line here at his 1800 family project. And that is Mr. Fred Trump was given the contract to build uh, projects in a place that was called Beach Haven. I'm not sure what it's called now. But what Woody discovered after he and his family moved there was that it was segregated. And so this is the song that he wrote. <clears throat> and it goes to the tune of I Ain't Got No Home. Beach Haven ain't my home. I just can't pay this rent. My money is down the drain and my soul is badly bent. Beach Haven looks like heaven, except no black folks come to Rome. No, 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 old man Trump. Old Beach Haven ain't my home. Woo! Oh my God, <laughs> that, that was, was so classic. All right, so we play a game. That's the perfect way to wrap up the conversation. We're just take a few seconds. We're going to play a little game. It's called Rapid Fired. We're going to say a few things. It's very free association. We'll go back and forth and just say something. You say the first thing that comes into your mind. All right. All right. Marla sure. Maples. Donald Trump. Um, White House. Uh, uh, Dolly Madison. Dolly Parton. <laughs> uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> um, what the hell do I know? Nothing. <laughs> um, Me too. White. Uh, uh, this game is so wash. Oh. Arlo Guthrie. Republican. Charlie Guthrie. Son of Jeffrey P. Jerry P. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Melania Trump. Um, Slovenia. <laughs> A very measured response. Um, African. Uh, uh, gosh, music. Uh, oh, okay. interesting. Tribal roots. Interesting, yes. Okay. Uh, Tracy Chapman. African music. <laughs> African music. <laughs> Odetta. Oh. I don't know how to play this. What is this game? You know so many things I don't know. This is crazy. Okay. I've never kept up less with anybody. Broadway. Mm. Oh, my. Uh, well, t- uh, uh, commercialism. Uh, uh, Irish. <laughs> um. Music. Why are you at the Irish <laughs> rep? By the way, I'm going to come back to this game. We'll play a couple more rounds. But why are you at the Irish rep? I couldn't figure that out. Well, um, that's a that's a difficult question to answer. But basically, it's that we've been doing this show for ten years all over the world, and a lot of people have uh, have noticed us over that time and made inquiries about bringing the show to New York, and um, the Irish Repertory Theater is the place where it worked out. Oh, okay. Basically, but. There is uh, a definite, in my opinion, 
it is the music that ties us to uh, in any way at all to Ireland. Because it's that Appalachian sound right. that filtered in. Yeah. And Irish people are socialists a lot of the time if they have their That's heads true. on. That's right? true. So yeah. communism. Wow. Uh, Harold Leventhal. Uh, depression. John Steinbeck. Ooh. Mm, you're a smart person. This land is your land. Don't you dare say this land is my land. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, if we we're doing free association, I would say I was very impressed with Lady Gaga. Oh. rendition of This Land is Your Land at the Super Bowl. Yeah. Which he put with God Bless America. Really smart. Oh, my God. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. That's and then she jumped off of she that She really stadium. did her homework. Yeah. yeah. Well, was, she's a student. That jump is the gift that keeps giving. Have you ever have you ever played that gif on a loop? Of her jumping? Of her jumping. Do you know what a gif is? <laughs> I'll find it for you. This <laughs> no, is, I have this no is idea. This is going to be a must for us. <laughs> okay. You know? All right. Uh, last, w- last one I'm going to give you. Bob Dylan. Ah. Uh, Phil Oaks. Okay. The clan. With a K. The pointy clan. Oh. <laughs> um... It's okay to say underrated. <laughs> <laughs> this is your that's chance a, at that scandal. That's a tough one. Um, golly, there's so many things that come to mind, but I have at it. What percentage is positive? <laughs> um, I have to. Oh gosh. Out of the goodness of your heart. All right. Um, <laughs> the the darkest part of America. I okay. guess I would say. Cool. Literally correct, yeah. Good Absolutely answer. correct of you. This has been really fun. I I really love the show, and I hope everybody goes and sees it if you it's can. It's called? It's called Woody Says S-E-Z. And you can catch it at? The Irish Repertory Theater. But I don't want to sell it. You sell it. Tell us why people should come see you and when they can come see you, too. Well, it's a, it's a show that talks about the life of one of America's greatest uh, poets and singers and songwriters. And... The life of the guy is something that a lot of people don't know. And a lot of the music is something that more people should know. Okay, and so you're here till when at the Irish Repertory Theater? We're here till September the 10th. And you're extended, right? This That's is right. a hit. It's yeah. a hit. It's, it was right. sold out the night that I came. But people can get cheap tickets. I mean, cheap for New York City, 35 Sure, months, sure. You, right? can get, you can get tickets, I think, on, on uh, TDF and, and a couple of things. They're usually in the... Uh, rows that are further back but but they ain't very many rows that are far back here no okay this is the perfect theater there it's very there's like to row k or something it's not that far yeah. back it's a beautiful theater you'll get a good seat but also uh today ticks is a good app that's where we got our ticks right. so and what are you doing outside of this what else well uh um i'm going up uh to uh we my band has done a couple of concerts over the summer we do a thing at that uh at Barrington Stage Company on the 4th of July. We're going up to uh, uh, New Falls to do a thing in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, and then um, my wife, uh, Sherry, and I are going down to Florida to do a, a production about uh, um, the Holy Ghost, Hank Williams, uh, down there uh, in uh, October and November. Is and it a new I'm, Hank Williams show, or is it the one that's been it's, around? Uh, yeah, it's called Lost Highway. It's Lost been Highway, for a long yeah, time. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So how can people find you? Are you on any kind of social media? Do you have a website? Do you have a cast pod? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have a Do cast pod. <laughs> but uh, um, we do have the website, woodysays.com. Mm-hmm. 
is the website of, of the show. And um, by the way, for your listeners down in Houston, Texas, the show is on in Houston, Texas right now, as a matter What's of fact. Houston? With, Where? A, with a different at cast. At, at the, no, it's not the Alley Theater. It's, it's a theater called Stages Theater in Houston. Cool. And um, so the, the schedule of the, of the show is, is up there. Uh, where Good we're for going you to get those licensing checks. That's, well, I got my fingers crossed. <laughs> and uh but no, I don't really have any any uh thing about about uh on the on the uh internet. Internet, thank you. Uh about me particularly. I know um, it was brutal finding really? stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I had to go onto the dark web. You have some crazy I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> bought a boy <laughs> and found our <laughs> guest his name is woody <laughs> but right. after alan don't worry the creepy one well this has been great thank you so much and you guys can find us as always at unhirable show on twitty and insty at patreon.com slash unhirable and unhirablepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and everybody that came up and said hi last night at the Razor Show, thank you so much. It was so dope to meet you. There's just like literally nothing better than meeting you guys. It was just the best ever. Oh, and then a week from tonight, Tuesday the 15th, Karen and I are co-hosting Big City Stories in Brooklyn at Rich Lane, 9 p.m. That's it. Open invite. We would love for you to come. Also, we'll I just want to say that during the podcast, Tommy silently fell off of his chair. <laughs> and nobody said anything. They got back on. I, I know, have to tell you. We're with a polite Southern gentleman. <laughs> and David. <laughs> I didn't even notice. All right. Thanks, guys. Right, you guys. Thanks, Woody. We'll see you guys next week. This land is your land, but mostly mine. <laughs>